This is Apinda. I am the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Lead at the Education and Training Foundation. Welcome to our next podcast and the podcast is on menopause matters across the FE sector. I'd like to introduce my colleagues. We have Jeff Greenidge, Director of Diversity at the Association of Colleges and Jeff will be chairing today's podcast. I also have Asma Ahmed, who's a Head of Faculty for ESOL and Supported Learning from South Bank Colleges. Paul Haskison, Faculty Area Manager for Part-Time Math and English for Adults and Apprenticeships from Nottingham College. I also have Katina Barrett, who's an activist from the Women's Leadership Network. Marguerite Hogg, Senior Policy Manager for Adult Education at the Association of Colleges. And Colette Sunner, who's a lecturer in teacher education at Sandville College. Welcome to you all and thank you for your time today and being part of this podcast for Education and Training Foundation with Association of Colleges. Jeff, over to yourself. Thanks, Apinda. Thanks for that introduction. And um, I welcome everyone to this podcast on menopause matters. You know, why does menopause matter? And actually, why have you got a couple of men around this table talking about menopause? Because I think it's not just about um, women in their 50s. It's so important that we make the most of all talents that we have within um, the further education sector. And there are women in their 50s. Increasingly, people are leaving the workplace. There are lots, lots of reasons why people leave the workplace but they're leaving at a time when they're at the height of their talents. And the whole diversity and inclusion agenda is really about making the most of the talent that we have within the sector. So that, for me, is why menopause matters. And I'm really pleased that we've got colleagues from the sector here to talk about this today. We're not experts. We're here through lived experience, and we're going to share our experience with you. And hopefully we'll learn something from this. We'll also get some insights from this. We'll take some personal action from this, and that moves the agenda forward for all concerned within further education. So my first question really is to the panellists. It's simple. Why does menopause matter? I'll go first to Asma, and then I'll go to Colette. So from your perspective, why does menopause matter? Hi. So for me, menopause only started mattering in the last 18 months, actually, before it didn't matter, because it was all from personal experience. So I'm 47 now. So I think around 44, 45, I started noticing some differences, which actually spilled over in my work environment. So I know for me on a personal level, it really matters because it's not just something that affects me when I'm at home. It affects me when I'm at work. It affects me with my family. And I think it started to matter to me when I was starting to go through perimenopause. And I think it was at the same sort of time where the awareness started to creep in. I'm with South Bank Colleges, so we are a part of LSBU. And there, there's a lot of work has been done around menopause with menopause cafes and things like that. So I think it just coincided with my own experience and having information through podcasts, through sort of the cafe, alongside the time where I started to get these symptoms, it started to matter to me because it started to affect me at work. And I was able to reach out and understand what a difference that started to make to me, just being able to talk about it. So it was at a time when I was considering going into senior management. I'm in mental management now. Um, I decided it's not for me after a whole sort of two decades of working myself up. And then all of a sudden feeling like I just just I can't do it and it was all because of this kind of symptoms that were creeping in and they weren't very serious symptoms 
everyone's different, but they, they were still enough for me to start to question the career that I'd built up and whether I'd be able to deliver. So that's one of the reasons that it matters to me. And I've had positive experiences with the college, with my manager, with networks. So I want to share that and I want to ensure that other people in the same boat as me get access to that as well. Thank you for that, Asma. I wonder how many people, how many women uh, at that particular point ask themselves that same question of, is this for me, you know, and begin to question whether they can continue within the sector. That's something I think we'll pick up on later on down the line. But what I'm pleased to see is that you were able to reach out, you were able to talk about it. So again, perhaps we can share some of the actions around being able to reach out within the organisation. Can I go to Colette then and, and now for Colette to Marguerite to get your experiences about why menopause matters? Thank you, Jeff. I am really happy to be here to talk about menopause. It's something I've been talking about for quite a while. So I'm a lecturer at Samuel College and I'm 48 and I have been transitioning the menopause for around eight years. So I was around 40 when my symptoms first started. But I have very recently completed a dissertation because I've been doing the BA in post-compulsory education. Teaching is actually a second career for me. And I was quite interested in exploring my kind of teacher identity initially, because for so many years, I've kept this part of myself hidden because there's a huge amount of shame that comes with the taboo that's attached with menopause and keeping it quiet. And this idea that I'll be judged, my abilities will be judged rather than my actual abilities, but the fact that I am menopausal. So I did an autoethnographic that explored my menopause experience in FE. So yeah, myself and Asma have chatted previously about our experiences, but I really found that once I started to own what was happening to me and try to normalise the conversations I was having about menopause, it really helped me to overcome the shame that I was experiencing and really started to open up more conversations with other women that are experiencing similar to me. 61% of our workforce in education is female, 65% in my own college, and 51 is the average age of menopause. So they're really important conversations for us to be happening. It's not happening soon enough, really. Menopause matters because women, I feel, have been silenced for too long around this subject. There is always an air of silence around our periods and issues around our, well, just our bodies, knowing what our body is called and the words for our bodies. There's, you know, research done that something like 60% of women can't even label their body accurately. So how do we have those open conversations? And as we're in the business of education, I think we should be modelling those conversations far more. So it's changing that narrative that menopause means it's all over, that our careers are over, our lives are limited because of it. So I really want to be part of that conversation to try to change that narrative. As a result, my college, they're actually drafting a policy now and they've been really open to some of the recommendations that I've put forward, which would include not just menopause, but also periods, because some of the issues around bleeding, very heavy periods come up in menopause. But actually, some women live with that their whole lives. So I'm really pleased that they're so open to some of those recommendations because some of the research I've done, pretty much every opportunity, men arrived, men came to those sessions that I ran and menopause cafes. There's always been men at them wanting to support other people. So the policy has to include everybody and others that support people transitioning the menopause. That's why menopause matters to me. 
Thanks, Colette. And there's some really powerful messages in there. It's tough to encapsulate those. But what I really love to hear that it's about having the conversation. And in that conversation, changing the narrative around the body. Why can't we talk about the body? Why do we find it so difficult? How many of our colleagues in colleges find it difficult to talk about this taboo subject, as you called it? And interestingly, we judge ourselves through things that disable us. Why why would we want to judge ourselves uh, through the menopause or, or feel as though we're being judged by it? The silence makes it more disabling. Exactly. So why don't we talk about these things? Why don't we we talk about it? It came out recently that medics have an accurate anatomical model of the woman's body. Up until this point, they've been using the male anatomical model to learn about women's bodies and just showing it to be smaller. And then you think, well, it's no wonder we're not talking about it. And that, you know, when I went to my GP, my GP didn't know what was happening to me and wasn't able to talk about it either. So it's no wonder, is it? Exactly. That's brilliant, Colette. You've set us on the road here now. Can I go to Marguerite and then go to Katina to get your perspective on why does it matter? Thanks, Jeff. Um, It's really great to be here today talking about this so openly. I guess for me, mine stems also from personal experience. So in October of 2017, I went to a European project meeting in the Netherlands. Now, for context, I'd been travelling for 20 years as part of my job. Before I became senior policy manager at AOC, I'd been doing a range of international projects solidly for 20 years. So I'd travelled all over the world as a solo traveller, India, China, America, all over Europe. And in 2017, on the way back from a project meeting, I was at Schiphol Airport and had a panic attack. And that was the first panic attack that I'd ever had in my entire life. I just couldn't deal with being in the airport at that time and what I had to do to get on my flight to get home. I rang my husband. He didn't know what to tell me to do. And somehow I managed to get back. There'd been a build up to this. So I'd been increasingly getting anxious about lots of things and it was impacting work. So I was starting like to doubt my own abilities and my own experience, which is absolutely bonkers because I know that I've got decades of experience in the FE sector. You know, I'm a really capable person, but I started to doubt myself. And I'd been several times to see different GPs and every one of them, because at the time I was sort of in my mid 40s, said, I don't think it's menopause. I don't think it's menopause. And I was saying, well, could it be menopause? No, I don't think it is. And quite often, you know, they were trying to prescribe antidepressants to me and I knew it wasn't I wasn't depressed I was feeling anxious but there was no reason for me to feel anxious because I knew that I was an experienced professional and I mean you know finally at some point I did end up getting HRT and and that's been an absolute game changer and I know it's not for everybody but for me it has you know helped a lot but you've got to consider that women at the normal age that they would start to go through menopausal symptoms they're at that stage professionally where they're usually at the top of their game really but they're also possibly part of that sandwich generation so you've got women who maybe had kids a little bit later so their kids are now doing things like they're going through the GCSEs or A levels or going on to university and all the things that especially over the last couple of years with covid you know you've got kids who didn't take their GCSEs haven't sat exams before and and all that stress that you've got to manage as a parent and then elderly parents to care for so for example my mum bless her she's got dementia so you've got those added pressures on you as well as trying to cope at work and be the professional that you know you can be 
And it really concerned me that there wasn't an open conversation about this. And I was at a stage, especially around that period in 2017, where I was embarrassed about saying anything at work because I thought that would be seen as a weakness in me. Oh, she's not up to the job, you know. And that might have been part of my own anxiety at that time that was feeding that. But I really did not want to have that conversation at work because I thought that would impact on, you know, my my role and how I was viewed by colleagues and senior management and leadership. Now, I'm sure senior management and leadership would have been absolutely supportive. And in fact, at AOC, I'm really pleased to say that we too, like Colette's College, are, are now developing a menopause and periods policy. And we also felt that it was important to include periods within that as well, because as Colette mentioned, some women do suffer quite significantly with periods. And maybe later on, we can talk about that as well because you know periods can change quite significantly when you're going through perimenopause and bring a whole host of issues especially you know I don't teach but I can imagine for someone who stood in front of a class and I've got examples of where that can be a real challenge so I certainly think that certainly AOC the fact that we're now having a much more open discussion about it and that we're formulating a policy that will support some of my colleagues as they start to go through this transition is going to be hugely helpful I just think that, you know, I'm quite lucky that my manager, he's been massively supportive with anybody in the team, whatever issue they've got. So I count myself very lucky, but I know that not everybody has that support. Thanks, Marguerite. We'll come on to the role of managers at some point in this conversation. But what I'm interested in hearing there is the signs that others could see and the signs that you could see. You mentioned the panic attacks. And so how alert are we to looking at the signs within our organisation? And how alert are we for ourselves and noticing that doubting behaviour that we we have sometimes? And again, you pick up on a point that I think Colette mentioned around things being seen as a weakness. And again, the positive aspect coming out of it is that now there's a policy being developed. policy is a starting point and perhaps we'll come on to talking about um, what those policies might contain at some point. Can I go to Katina and then I'd like to have Paul's perspective on it after Katina. Hi thank you Jeff. So um, I'm Katina and I enjoy not being in employment at the moment and that enables me to do more or less whatever I want as a transnational intersectional feminist and that's where I'm coming at around this. So my interest is in terms of looking at the menopause as a practice of equality. I pray that none of the policies you're all describing are the ones I want to put on a bonfire because I do want to put most of them on a bonfire. I don't want this to be one of those things where we have objectives and aims at some far off place in the distant future when we will handle the menopause well for people because we won't get there. We haven't got there with any of the other issues and we're not going to get there now. I pray I stop reading research reports that really just presume that the menopause started not with the ancient Egyptian stereotypes or even with Gardan naming it in 1821, but instead I, you know, start with the cisgender middle class white woman who is currently campaigning about it. Because I read research about disabled women, about black women, about transsexual women, and what I hear is everything is compared to the white woman. So, you know, Asian women might start their menopause earlier. Earlier than what? Finish the sentence. You mean white women. Black women might start it a bit later or go on a bit longer than white women. So I kind of want to see an end to that. And I definitely don't want to see any of that in our policies in this sector because it won't work. What will work is compassion. 
what will work is women defining this, not men. Sorry about this. You have to get out the game for this one. And you have to stay out the game for a while. What you can be busy doing is what the NHS says you should do, which is to work on an andropause policy for the hormonal changes that men go through at roughly the same time. But otherwise, you need to stay out of it. But I've said women, and of course, that's another one of the inequalities, isn't it? What about the women who don't have periods? What about the people who don't identify as women and yet have periods and go through a menopause? And clearly, it's all of that that would make it a practice of equality for me. It's also about recognising what the hell must it be like in Ukraine at the moment and going through the menopause or even just trying to manage your periods. And we have people here, don't we, in detention centres, asylum seekers. Somebody tell me how they're managing on the allowances and things like that. So those are the kinds of things I want us to think about. And one of the really special things for me, apart from reading Colette's dissertation last night, which made me say she should be here today, is the project that asthma has been working on at SBC. Because what they've done is they've worked with these whole staff and students. And here's the problem with this workforce approach. What is it that the government has suddenly woken up and we petty women who have been, you know, while the Colossus has been bestriding us in the workplace, we petty women somehow suddenly matter in the economy again because we hit the menopause and we might be upsetting the workforce demographics, just like in the war, really, when suddenly we were wanted to be employed and then we're not needed again. So one of the kind of things I think is so special about the SBC approach is it has included students and it's probably included some of the most marginalised students. That only works if SBC sees that through and recognises that if you address the menopause for staff and you don't address it for students, then you have failed. And I am definitely burning your policy. And you failed because... Partly the nature of what we do, as Colette says, in terms of education, partly because we're sending people out to all kinds of sectors from here. So we desperately need for gender equality for them to see it in action so that when they're managers and trade union reps and chief executives, then they know how to do it well. And that's what's really, really important is this whatever you do, which has got to be about more than fans on desks and windows that open again. And uh, being able to go to a sanitary machine or whatever, absolutely have to make this possible for students going through the menopause. Because if we don't, then actually we failed. But on the other hand, if we do what we classically do in FE, which is we sort it out for students, we make it all about students, we forget about staff, we'll have failed staff too. So this really is a gender equality issue, recognising that not everybody identifies as a woman. And that kind of what I'm doing here. And when I heard that, I suppose, AOC had woken up to the workforce issue, (laughs) then I felt it was kind of really important to talk about that, you know, and to say, It is not only about our own workforce, it's about what we do for other workforces too. And it's about what we do, you know, much more than what goes on in FE. That's me, shut up now. Thank you, Katina. Hopefully you won't shut up because, you know, you make some really important points there around. I I get the sense it's about inclusion, isn't it? It's about inclusion right across the board. It's about being purposeful in what we do and being very intentional in what we do. So those are, just trying to summarise what you say, it's difficult, but those are the three key thrusts that I think came through from that conversation. And it is also about women who are staff, it's about students. We have got men on this, so I want to go to a man now. It is very much around. There is a role in here for men, because we do listen, we do hear, we need to take some action as well. So Paul, I'd like to hear your views, and then I'll come on to a pinder. 
Thanks, Jeff. I think for me, I'm you know, a relatively new manager into post and I'm one of a very small amount of male managers in this particular college. And like you know, most male managers in our college, we manage big teams of, of female workers, particularly in adult functional skills. The kind of provision is dominated by female staff. And so for me, really, as a new manager, it was about where do I go for the support? You know, if someone comes to me for some kind of support, I'm clearly no expert in this field. And so for me, it was about recognising and being able to reach out to find some support in order for me then to subsequently go back and, and support a particular established and knowledgeable member of the team for a long time who'd been going through quite a huge personal crisis for several years, you know, recently lost both parents in a very kind of short space of time, single parent, struggling with a health in other areas and then once we kind of had several conversations I think it was the confidence after we'd had those conversations that she was then able to kind of disclose going through the menopause and trying to you know manage it quite independently was becoming a bigger part of a huge problem and that's really when I reached out and tried to identify in the college and I know that Deborah and her team have been doing a huge amount of work and I know that they've had guest speakers into the college and you know these policies going off and we have the cafes and there's been a lot of success but for me as a manager and I think I obviously can't speak on behalf of all the managers at my level but I know that there are other male managers that we're just not skilled up and clued up enough to be able to deal effectively with a request for support from a member of staff. So for me, this is all about us being brave and reaching out and being able to offer and receive that support in the workplace. I'll be honest, it really frightened me when I started to have these conversations with this particular member of staff because I really struggled to empathise and to, you know, to understand exactly what this person was experiencing. And then finally, I was able to reach out and provide some indirect support, which I know is kind of continued and is maintained. And we're seeing a, you know, a real turn in terms of not just the support for the menopause, but collectively from that whole process of support for this particular member of staff. From a personal perspective, menopause matters because my partner, who's 51, is also going through this and has recently lost a parent, which has obviously added to her personal crisis. And again, I would like to say that I read and I research and I listen and I speak about the menopause. But from a male perspective, sometimes I just think wrongly now I know that I just don't want to say anything for, for fear of being snapped back at. And I don't want to feel like that as a man. I want to feel as though as a manager and as a partner, I can offer and support in an appropriate way. Thanks, Paul. One of the challenges we have within this whole diversity and inclusion arena is fear. We're all afraid of making a mistake. We're all afraid of saying the one thing. And that fear stops us from having the conversation that Colette was talking about, that Asimov was talking about. And in fact, what we are doing is we're going backwards. So I think one of the challenges for senior leaders in organisations is that fear of being made vulnerable, not having the answer, not knowing what to say in that particular context. And I'm really glad, that Paul, you've shared your story there, because the more of us who are willing to get out of our comfort zone, I suppose, and to feel uncomfortable and be comfortable feeling uncomfortable is then when those conversations that Katina was talking about, when those begin to happen. So thanks for sharing those things, Paul. Can I go to Pinda then for her take on this? And then we'll come back then and perhaps I'll pick up with Katina and then Marguerite looking at what can we do in the workplace. So Pinda. 
Yep, thank you, Jeff. So I am 48, going very soon to be 49. And about three, four years ago, you notice changes in your body, as we were all talking about, there's hormonal changes, changes in your personality a little bit as well. I'm so good. I, in fact, I never used to, do, I do to-do lists. I never look at my to-do list because I just remember things and I, I know what I need to do the next day, etc. And I have to tell I was forgetting things or things were slipping and my memory of things of my life and people around me and instances and names and dates was phenomenal. And suddenly I could not remember. I remember sitting there talking about some strictly come dancing, could not remember my favourite dancer's name. And this is like a year and a half ago. And I was like, you know, the one I like. And it just suddenly hit me that I am forgetting the smallest details. And that brain fog kind of made me think, oh, there's something wrong with me. So that was one thing going on. Started losing my hair a little bit. I've got a lot of hair, but I noticed a difference. And then COVID came. I thought, I've got a long COVID and it must be that. And it wasn't, partly maybe. And then, you know, it's really interesting we're talking about periods as well, because we don't always align the two together. I've struggled with a menstrual cycles for at least 12, 13 years. I struggled when I was very young. I started puberty at a very young age at nine and a half when I thought I was dying. didn't even know this stuff existed. And then going through years of being fine. And then suddenly in the last sort of 12 years, really bad menstrual cycles, heavy, very, very painful. It's gotten worse. And now every time I have a menstrual cycle period now, because they're not as regular, which is great when they don't come now. And I'm like, yay, I haven't got one. Whereas before it was like, well, oh, I hope it comes on time and all that kind of stuff. But it just debilitates me. And I've taken so many painkillers that I have brain fog and wooziness from the painkillers because I can't actually function. The last 18 months, I cannot function when I'm first two, three days. So I'm at a home hot water bottle in meetings. And Katina knows that because we've had a WLN meeting when I've had a hot water bottle. And I'm very open about saying I'm struggling now. Whereas before, you keep a brave face. So menopause matters because one, I'm going through perimenopause or stroke going through menopause. Two, I had a meeting with a consultant at a hospital in northwest London. And a couple of things he said to me is, well, why haven't you had children yet? So what's the matter with you? And secondly, I wasn't allowed to take anyone with me to the appointment, even though I was really, really, really anxious because I'm single. You can only bring a partner. So if you're single, you have to go through the whole thing on your own. Sitting there with him, I had my dates with me, patterns of menstrual cycle and hormonal imbalances. Not interested, didn't care. Is all about getting in there, we're just going to clean you up, we're going to, and there was that medical procedure. I hadn't even thought about things like that. And I said, well, you know, am I perimenopausal? What, what's going on here? And previous to that, I had an appointment with my GP, where it wasn't, she was a loco. And when I went to see this, we could see him face to face, just literally before the COVID came. And I said, when I was doing some research, and she said, well, research where? And I said, on the internet. Well, you look intelligent. Why are you doing research on the internet? You should be coming to us. I said, because it's taken me six weeks to get this appointment. I was desperate. I don't know what's going on with me and my body. So you're not allowed to do your own research. You have to rely on GPs who they themselves admit that they don't know a lot about the menopause. And then I was reading a list again online about 50 different types of symptoms. Some of them I didn't even know you were associated with menopause. So what's important to me about doing all of this is that there's a conversation that people get rid of the shame. I have had shame around my menstrual cycle, especially the last 12, 13 years. You're worried when you come into work. You can't wear white. You're worried about when you stand up, what it's going to look like. You're worried when you sit down, what it's going to look like. Am I going to leak? Am I going to bleed? You have to have access to a toilet because you sometimes need to go 15 times in a day. And I'm not exaggerating. People look, you go, why is she always in the toilet? Something going on. And I should be able to say, yes, I am struggling today. My last manager, who's male, he said to me, actually, not that long ago, 
what can I do as a manager to support you when you're going through this? And I said, well, I need the support. Sometimes all I need to do is I need to lie down for half an hour. I don't want to be sitting in a chair. And it's things like that where you should be able to talk to your line manager or in, within your organisation. I'm in a fairly youngish organisation in the sense of a lot of the people here are 20s and 30s. I have started talking about it with colleagues, but you get a bit of a blank face or you get a bit of a, oh, I'll talk about it later. Oh, we'll come back to that. So we're in the FE sector where there is a maturer workforce, we need to set tone and then it should filter into other organisations who support FE but are not necessarily directly because we've got a very young workforce and they don't quite yet get it. So why I need to go to the loo 15 times in a working day and then the stress of an hour and a half journey home. So working from home has really helped me in the last 18 months because it's gone gradually worse. And then I was diagnosed with a condition that I do have, which then affects everything, the perimenopause, the menopause. And then now I have to consider a surgical procedure, which I don't want to do. But we don't know if that's going to help the menopause, if it's going to be better or make it worse. So all those things that go around you in your head, being single is you're shamed, not having had children, you're shamed. And then when you've had children and you've got ambition, then you're shamed. And the shame of it is what lingers. And that's what causes the trauma, which can make all these things even worse sometimes. So that's my experience. And that's why for me, menopause really matters so I can support my colleagues and support myself too. So thank you. Thanks, Apinda. And again, I'm taking from that. Let's talk about it now. There's no point waiting any longer. Let's talk about this now. There's no point us hiding behind things. That shame, that taboo comes up time and time again. And someone said earlier on, it's about normalising this. It's about bringing it out in the open. And there are three areas that you hinted at. There's things that we can do as individuals. You took action. There are things that professionals need to do in not de-skilling us not de-skilling women, and listening deeply, listening to understand as opposed to listening to just simply hear. And there's something that the workplace can do. Can I go on to the workplace then? And I'd like to have your views on whether we think that workplace practices need to be better designed. You know, what do we need to do differently in the workplace to support women during this time? Can I ask Katina first and then Marguerite, you know, for your perspective on what we can do to support women? Katina? Yeah, I think first off, let's stop talking about symptoms. Okay, menopause is not an illness. It's not a disease. These are effects from a perfectly natural experience and one that is temporary. I know 10 and 15 years might not feel very temporary, but honestly, it's temporary. And I'm saying that because I'm out the other side. All right. Except for on the days the hot flushes are still there. So first off, it's there's something about that. And the reason that matters is it will help others, including managers, senior leaders, whoever you want to say, and doctors who haven't until now really received training around the menopause in their initial training. It will stop them pathologizing us. OK, so, for example, Marguerite, when you were talking about anxiety or getting anxious and when you were talking about depression, we now know, as you found out, that the depression ostensibly that gets labelled isn't responsive to antidepressants very often occasionally they might give something on top of HRT but it's hormonal so HRT is the answer for that if you can take it now some people can't particularly disabled women where it might be contraindicated in some conditions but on other conditions it helps 
And the other one is the anxiety, actually. People still talk about anxiety. They're now beginning to realise that that's the wrong term for that. It buys into the mental illness, okay? You may well have a mental illness already when you reach your menopause. You may well develop a mental illness while you're going through that transition. But actually, the two things are not synonymous. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we need to do. I think we need to treat it closer to what we do around pregnancy, maternity, you know, seeing this as a woman's right to find ways for that to be managed in the workplace and I think as much control as you can give to women themselves over their time and their arrangements is best I hate buddies and things like that but something like hysterectomy for hysterectomy where people kind of maybe choose to cover each other and have a degree of independence around doing that for things that might work well thank god for covid because it taught us that we can work remotely in many instances and that does sometimes include teaching And I think Colette, as that woman that said to you that whole flush will pass, that actually students will be more understanding because it is in the national curriculum now since 2018. So young people will be learning a bit about the menopause. So some of this not knowing might go over time. And I think we need to be aware of that, that it's in the national curriculum. And as young people come through, it will be there. I think we need to think about why have other countries like Canada and Spain introduced three days a month that you can take off for your periods? Because actually... If you bleed around the menopause, and remember, there will be people who didn't have periods before they started the menopause and who don't have many periods or don't have bleeding problems in the menopause. But if you do, then that same three days could apply and that would be flexible around you. And I can see all kinds of workload scheduling, hands going up in the air, but that's the reality. And I think also it's the reality for students. So Asma, one of the things that broke my heart most about the ESOL students was them talking about just how exhausted they are. So exhausted that they can't really come into class with it. And if they do come into class, they're too exhausted, brain foggy to actually participate in speaking English and learning English. And what they needed and were desperate for, really, they said, was actually to be allowed to have Zoom sessions. Now, I've worked on other projects where if a learner can't turn up, these were mental health projects, so, you know, we were trying to make accommodations, they could Zoom into the class. Even though the class was going on in person, they could Zoom in and they'd still attended. And those kinds of things, I think, are some of the things that we can do in the workplace. We can look at any trades union's template policy. We can look at any big organisation's template policy and pick what we want off it. But that is not what will work. Actually doing something that looks at where the power lies around this and how can you make it more shared, more transparent, less that it's about illness, less about, I know you've all said it, but less about disclosing. You shouldn't have to feel like you're disclosing something about saying, you know, like I'm going to claim my maternity rights. I'm claiming my right to this adjustment, if you like. And then whatever those adjustments are, somebody please help women make sure that it's not going to damage them financially or career wise in the long term. Because the number of times I see advice that women could reduce their hours, you reduce your hours, you may well be reducing your pension long term. And trust me, when you get to that point, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, you get to the day when your pension's there at 66 now, but it will be 67 in a couple of years. Those lost years when you've dropped to part time and below a 
threshold will be something you can't go back and cover financially by buying extra years. So I think personally, I wouldn't need HR to be, I don't know, telling me how to manage finding somewhere to lie down. I just need them to provide it, for example. But I really need them to help think through what that financial impact might be if I do take time out. And that's why I think things like sharing or a job share, although job share usually means part time, but you could do two full time jobs that you job share between you. And I've done that in the NHS with people. I've done that covering a job, two full time jobs between two people so that they can have some flexibility. It wasn't around the menopause. It was around disability, but it can work. So those are my thoughts. They're a bit different to the usual, I think, because I think the usual everybody will do, Jeff. Thanks, Katina. And, you know, we're, we're here about sharing things, so it helps uh, the rest of our colleagues. Can I go to Marguerite? I saw Paul's hand come up there. So Marguerite first, then Paul afterwards. Marguerite? Yeah, I guess AOC is a little bit like ETF Apinda in terms of sort of the workforce. So we've got quite a young workforce as well. And the team that I'm in is probably one of the oldest teams in the organisation. So in a way, I'm quite lucky in that the majority of our team, we do have some men in the team, but the majority of the team are women. And they are either all going through it, coming up to that point that they're going through it or have been through it. But as I mentioned before, my line manager is a man and he actually has been fantastically supportive and he is of all the team. And I think sometimes it's not even just about understanding the menopause. It's about just having the right attitude and the right levels of empathy as a manager, but also as colleagues. So I know that our team is really, really tight and we have supported each other through various challenges in sort of personal lives with illness, with kids, with, with all sorts sorts of life changes and I think that really helps so our manager is absolutely brilliant at saying it's fine we can cover things as a team and we do that quite regularly you know if someone is ill then we will jump in and organize that person's diary and sort it out for them so they don't have to worry about it I know from my own perspective, and I can't believe I'm going to actually admit this, but last week, because the, the other thing, I, I mean, I know Katina was saying, you know, we shouldn't focus on symptoms, but one of the symptoms that I regularly have is extreme fatigue. And I think a lot of it is to do with that I'm up several times during the night to go to the loo. I'm hot and I'm kicking my covers off. But it means that quite often I, I might feel like I've had about eight hours sleep, but actually I'm absolutely wrecked the next day. And last week, I was so tired that I thought, I cannot keep my eyes open. I knew I didn't have meetings that, that afternoon. And I said to my husband, I'm going to have to go and lie down. And yes, I work from home at the minute. So I'm quite lucky that I'm able to do that. And I, I literally went and I put an hour on, on my clock by, beside the bed and I slept and then woke up and then went back to work again. And we're quite lucky. in, And I think this has been the COVID shift as well. And the way that we're all kind of working a bit differently. And there has been that shift, hasn't there, over the last couple of years. David Hughes, our chief executive, has always said to us during COVID, it's not about presenteeism. It's not about nine to five. As long as we get the outputs, it doesn't matter when you work during that day, because there's a recognition that everybody's situation is different. So not only for me having all these menopausal issues, but for others who've got caring responsibilities or, you know, we've got single parents who work at AOC. So I think it's about a culture of understanding that everybody's different, not just those that are going through menopause, but everybody is different and has their challenges. And it's our responsibility as colleagues to look out for each other and to look for where there are signs that somebody might be struggling, might just need somebody to reach out to them and help them. That said, I recognise that, you know, I'm quite lucky at the Association of Colleges in that 
we're not teaching. And I know that for frontline teaching staff, this could be a real issue when you're stood in front of a class. So, you know, my sister teaches, not in FE, she teaches in HE, but as Apinda was saying, her periods have been really erratic and terrible. And my sister has the same problem. And, you know, she's the same, she can't wear white. And quite often we'll stand in a lecture hall in front of her students and then think, oh God, it's just started and it's horrendous. And then it's what do you do then? And I know that um, I have had a conversation with someone in our sector, in the FE sector, who has a change of clothes with her at work and she has her mobile phone with her and she will text in the middle of her class to, to one of her colleagues and say, can you go to my drawer, pick up my clothes, my sanitary products, et cetera, et cetera. Just bring the bag and bring it to me. And I guess in those situations, and we were talking about, you know, I know Katina was mentioning something like the word buddy system. And I know that our policy that we're developing at AOC, we have talked about a buddy system, if you like. Maybe the word isn't right. But as I said to Jeff, it's about having allies, I think, isn't it? It's about, you know, I know that my line manager is an ally. I know that my team that I work in, I have allies. And it's about cultivating that sort of ally system. And if it needs to be formalised in a policy, I will happily put my hand up and volunteer to be a menopause ally but I worry about the challenges for staff in FE colleges I won't go on too much but there was another example I just wanted to give we talk about men staying out of it I actually think men are really important to this because I've seen situations where a female manager is actually worse than a male manager because what you have is women who've been through the menopause and will say well I didn't have any problems with it so you know get on with it whereas I think for men because they haven't and they will never go through that experience they're more likely to be empathetic because they don't understand it. So they want to try and help and understand. Whereas a woman who's been through it and didn't have any challenges with it, I mean, that's brilliant if they didn't, but there needs to be an understanding that everybody is different and there needs to be that understanding there. That's all I want to say for now, Jeff, but I think that's something that we need to consider that women also need to support other women, even if they've not had a problem with it. Thanks, Marguerite, for that to really, really clear. I've got Paul, then Asma, then Colette coming. So, Paul? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I just wanted to really just pick up on a point Katina made, and then Marguerite's just kind of echoed that in terms of revisiting that kind of experience I've had with a member of staff. As our conversations developed, we talked about different options of, of work patterns, and is there a possibility here of maybe losing some hours? She's a full-time teacher, teaches eight classes a week, and for her single parent and all the difficulties she's facing, that clearly wasn't an option for her to go down. So I think it's really important moving forward that we, I, I guess this experience is really made me think now about curriculum planning and how we operate but what I've been able to do with this particular member of staff is to kind of cut her week up where she's on campus for a certain amount of time but then she's using that opportunity to do some remote delivery online which is really important because I think as Marguerite just said something I wasn't recognising that she was literally up pretty much most of the night maybe getting a couple of hours sleep and absolutely just couldn't get her head off the pillow to come to work you know over daytime and I'm being really well supported by the college in terms of giving me the autonomy to say to staff, we can work with this, we can negotiate and we can come up with a plan that actually will hopefully work around it and suit you and make you just feel better about not being worried about being off work. Thanks, Paul. Some really good messages for colleagues in other colleges there. Asthma, I think, and then um, Colette. Yeah. 
Yes, loads coming up. <laughs> so I'm going to try and contain myself because there's so many things here now. So I was just going to say, you know, just in the world of work, what's worked for me and what I think has also come up in the research that I did with the teachers and the ESOL students was at a very basic level, just being able to talk, just having that dialogue, that conversation. Because I think Colette said um, that, you know, talking about it then makes you confident. Because I think that's what happened with me, that the more I was able to talk, now you can't shut me off, basically. Like I taught menopause everywhere, but it's the confidence that comes from it you know I'll go up to a student and say oh how are you doing you know and, and we'll, we'll start talking about the menopause you know but what I found with that was that a lot of the dialogue that when you get the confidence then I was able to just talk to a manager and just say that look I'm having x y and z symptoms and this is how I'm feeling and what I've got to pick up on the brain fog is that I think until you experience it you cannot imagine what that does to you right and what it reduces you to you know it's not just as simple as you know, we laugh about it sometimes that you know it's a bit like forgetting something and then and then you've got to sit there for two minutes trying to retrace your steps but actually when you're actually in a meeting with sort of senior managers and staff and you're going through some really important things and then you get to that moment you're about to pitch and then you forget your train of thought to a point where you actually are reduced to tears because you feel like you're incompetent you've lost the confidence and then you it's almost like you become somebody else for a few minutes because you just literally cannot remember for the life you what it was that you were trying to say I've been at home where you know I'm rushing around and I've only got a very short window to catch my train but I've literally forgotten what it was that I needed to go into another room for and which in effect has made me miss my train and then the whole cycle of being late for work so brain fog is actually a real issue and um, I wanted to also pick up Margaret on your point about extreme fatigue there are cycles the estrogen you know the, the hormone levels they keep reducing so every cycle you're going to feel different so for, for eight nine months you know I'd sorted out my vitamins I sorted out everything I needed to do and I was on a real high thinking oh, I have really mastered this stuff with menopause and the perimenopause all the symptoms I've got it sorted and then one day I just woke up and I had such extreme fatigue that brought me to tears and I could not function and I couldn't even for the life of me think that all the things that I've been doing it's not working so you know I think three and a half weeks ago so a whole week I just kept persevering with the fatigue, trying to get to work. But having a supportive manager that I've got a continuous dialogue with, so I'm fitting in an appointment with my physio, I'm fitting in an appointment with the GP, and you don't just get an appointment, you have to wait for them to call you. So you've got to have a three-hour window where you should be able to take calls so you can actually talk to the GP. You know, then I decided, right, it's time for HRT. That's it. This fatigue is telling me I've got to go on to HRT. So I did, you know, so two weeks ago, went on to HRT but all the knowledge that came from me having these options has actually come through the platform of work you know we spend most of our time at work I always laugh to my husband and say that work gets the best hours of my life because I spend so much time here so the information I'd get via emails or a podcast that's just about to come on or I can actually go on to a meeting that they're discussing menopause we have some manager training you know that I can access I can't do those things when I go home because I've got to deal with the dinner. I've got to deal with the kids, get them into bed. I've got to deal with so many other things. So I fall off the list. But when I'm at work, you know, I can do it during my lunch hour. There, there's an opportunity that I can tap in and I can learn more about this, which then helps build my confidence. So it's a cycle. So I think in the workplace, we need to look at how we create environments where people can just talk or how can we keep the conversation alive? That is not just the buzzword for the next six months. 
And I think that was what was coming out of with the student focus groups as well as the teacher focus groups was that it was the first time that they'd actually had an opportunity to talk about it. And when I asked them, what could the work placement be doing for you? One of the things that came out in all of the focus groups, whether it was staff or students, was I didn't know I could talk about it. You know, just being able to talk about it with somebody else that's having a similar experience and having that permission that I can talk about it is making a huge difference. So those were the kind of things that were coming out for me that I was just thinking, oh, my God, on a very basic level, these are the kind of things that we should be able to encourage in our workplaces. Thanks, Asma, for that. Uh, We'll come to Colette and then we'll wrap up starting with Apinda by just asking each of you to say, what's the one thing that you would like to see done differently within the workplace, in the further education workplace? So let's go to Colette first, then we'll come to Apinda for the beginning of the summary. I've loved listening to everyone's stories and I think everyone's being incredibly brave and the women here being brave in talking about their very personal stories as well. I've got so much to say about it all. It's really difficult. With regards to memory issues, there was a colleague of mine who shared a story about how she describes herself now as a pack horse because her memory is so affected and she has developed her own coping strategies and so carries literally her entire resources around on trolleys around the college from one lesson to the next for fear of that you know she's forgotten something or somebody will ask her for something and she doesn't have it and the frustrating part of that is the fact that there is such a simple solution to it if she was just given a base room what is the big deal about being Mm -hmm. given a base room that can be frustrating but I did agree I think with Katina when I was looking at things like symptoms we can get sucked into a hole looking at symptoms because menopause is so individual and I appreciate what Katina is saying about policy as well I think that's really important the language that's used because if we write that in a way that it's a one-size-fits-all that this is what menopause means this is what menopause looks like We develop this and we just feed into that same stereotype and women will be seen through that stereotype lens, a caricature of menopause. So my emotions aren't real, you know, so if I'm cross about something, oh, that's because she's menopausal, not because actually I might have a valid point. And I think we have to be very careful about that. So I think, I mean, initially I wasn't sure whether a policy was the right way to go because I think sometimes we have more flexibility without a policy, but we have to have some guidance. My manager is fantastic. I can't knock her. She's absolutely brilliant. She's really supportive and has always asked me, you know, what do I need? And sometimes that is just simply listen to me moaning about it for a little while. I feel better. I give words to the shame and it takes the legs off that shame and I feel a lot better. Brené Brown talks beautifully about shame and vulnerability and being brave. I recommend reading her if you're interested. But also what came from that was she then looked to management, if you like, her management and HR for that sort of additional guidance as to what was available. And of course, without a policy, she needs a bit more from her perspective. And I think it felt from talking from other colleagues that I was almost lucky because of the manager that I had. And it shouldn't be look of the draw, Mm -hmm. really. We want to develop a culture of openness and of flexibility. 
So my menopause is my menopause. I want to have a conversation about how my menopause affects me or my periods affect me or what it is about being a woman affects me. How can I do my job and do it well and just have some flexibility to be able to do that? And so that's why a policy has to be written with thinking about an individualised plan. If we talk about menopause and talk about health and safety and risk assessing women, I think that's all the wrong kind of language. I do not want to be risk assessed. I don't want to be seen as a hazard in my workplace. I want to be involved in what I need. So I've been advocating wellness action plans, which are often used in workplaces to support people around mental health. But I think we can adapt that for, well, it can be adapted for anything really. And I think that's the beauty of it because once I started researching menopause, it's actually far bigger than menopause. It's about us being individuals and seeing Mm. as the individuals that we are and bringing our uniqueness to the workplace. And rather than feeling that I'm being accommodated, that I'm being seen, We talk about bathrooms, for example, women frequently and often we don't even realise it because we're doing it and we're so used to doing it. We queue for bathrooms all the time. And so sometimes in queuing for a bathroom, it limits the choices that we have. I very rarely see men queuing for a bathroom. And there is shame in that. There is shame in me standing Mm. there with my special little bag for my sanitary towels because I have to hide them. It's not something we're going to be open about. Or the fact that even in that queue, I'm going to leak through my clothes and there's further humiliation with that. So I have to make a choice. Do I eat at lunchtime or do I queue for the bathroom because I only have a half an hour slot? Mm. If I go to the theatre, I have to make a choice. Do I go to the bathroom at the interval or do I get a drink? Because you can't do both. You cannot do both if you need the bathroom because of the queue. And that's happened within my workplace. There are men and women's bathrooms. Of course there are. But in health and social care, for example, there's far more women than there are men. And so it's so frequent. And those are the things we have to open our eyes to and see that this is about equality. And it's not about neutralising things, but having that to be able to do our jobs and do our jobs to the best of our ability without feeling like we're having to be accommodated. And so that's why I don't think there's a list of this is what workplaces should do. So often people say, let's get fans in and, you know, have open windows. It just doesn't work. It has to be individualised for what someone needs. I like Katina's ideas, though, and I think those should be suggestions within a policy and having more access to things like team teaching for that flexibility. And then that doesn't have to necessarily be limited to a member of staff or a student. It can be Mm. available to men, too. There are different scenarios that people might go through in their life where they need that additional flexibility. I recently listened to a podcast around having sanitary bins in men's toilets because of the taboo around incontinence um, with men. And those are the kind of things that we can think about from an individual perspective in our workplaces. Thanks. It is an individual thing. And I like what you say about my menopause is my menopause. And it's very personal to each person. So can I just have one thing from each person before we wrap up? Let's go to Upinda, then Asma, then Marguerite. Upinda, what's your message for colleagues listening today? I think one of my big messages is removing the shame around menopause because, as Katina said, every female or woman or whatever you want, how you want to say it's going to go through it. 
in one shape, form, description of another. Some are going to be extreme one way, some are going to be like, nothing happened to me. So it's removing that shame. And then the, that culture, sorry, this is too, then the cultural change within the organisation that reflects that removal of shame. So people can talk about it, have sessions on it, have the ally or a buddy. Or, cause everybody is different, as Colette said, it is you own it. But having the ability to ask for what it is that you need. I need a buddy, I need a desk, a fan. I need a place to lie down. I just need a daytime work at home or I need a base classroom. So having the ability and the freedom to ask for what it is that suits you, because as Colette said, your menopause is your menopause. It's not the same as everybody else's. Thanks, Apinda. Remove the shame. Dare to have the conversation and continue that conversation. Thank you. Asma, then Katina. I think for me, Colette, I love that myomenopause is myomenopause. Absolutely love it. I think for me as well, it'll be creating a culture of open conversations because if you're not talking about it, you can't make change. Culture. That came time and time again today. So the culture of the organisation. Thank you, Asma. Katina? To make this a practice of equality from day one that takes into account the inequalities. And I am not talking protected characteristics only here. So I do mean poverty. I do mean social class. And actually something nobody's mentioned in any of the FE stuff. I mean violence. So we know that women who've had violence as adverse child experiences have greater symptoms and often earlier menopauses. But we also know that there are women who are in their menopause who are experiencing domestic violence or intimate partner violence all the time and it gets worse in the menopause mm -hmm. and it worsens the menopause so I want to make sure we hear about those things now WLN asthma in particular is planning to do some bigger research along the lines of the Financial Services Authority research with the Fawcett Society and we are looking for potential partners to do this so I guess that might be my big ask is if people are interested in being partners in that research that they let WLN know that. Thank you Katina can I go to Colette then and then to Paul? Yes, I'm interested, Katina. I think for me, it's getting that sense of belonging through trying to overcome that sense of shame for women in our workplaces and then being able to be more like our authentic selves and not feeling that we have to keep these big parts of ourselves. Key parts of what make us women, keeping those hidden can be more of our authentic selves. And that has that direct impact on our students in that they get to see how you care for a woman in her workplace when she's transitioning the menopause you know it's modeling that isn't it i think it's a key part of their education in that too thank you some strong messages coming up paul then marguerite okay yeah for me two things really and several people have mentioned this this afternoon and it's about keeping this on the table it's about keeping it out there and it's not something that we're just going to put back in a cupboard after two or three months so certainly you know it's about making it known and sustainable and out there for everybody just to make sure that it stays on everybody's radar you know I know through my experience that I've talked about this afternoon it's something that's sat on our college website and it kind of gets talked about but it, it tends to be a bit hush hush it clearly needs to be out there there and it needs to stay out there and something that you know again I've mentioned and it's something I've been part of this afternoon and I'll take back and talk to colleagues at my level and then other teams but that's about ensuring that we can work collectively and I'm talking about us as a college but I think across other colleges it's about having this opportunity for being flexible and recognizing when someone will clearly benefit from having a very flexible approach to their working pattern. Thank you Paul. Marguerite. Yeah, it's been really, really interesting this afternoon. I've learned a lot. 
I think my parting message would be, as others have said, it's that continuing open discussion, certainly the removal of shame that, you know, I shouldn't feel embarrassed about the fact that I had to go and have a lie down. As my mother, 30 odd years ago, used to be embarrassed about having to go and have a lie down. But more importantly, I think certainly in the workplace, and Jeff and I talked about this before, about this team culture. If we can get the culture of teams right, then we can support each other no matter what the issue is. You know, whether it's menopause, whether it's caring responsibilities, whether it's sickness. We need to be, as colleagues and managers, looking out for each other and recognising when somebody looks like they might be struggling and might need some help. And, you know, there's an opportunity there for us as humans to reach out to other humans and connect and make sure they feel properly supported. Thank you. And someone put in the chat, Asma, did you want to come back in, Asma? Yeah, sorry, I was just going to mention that I just got a text message, ironically. The menopause practice standards have just been released today. (laughs) <laughs> uh, ironically by the British Menopause Society or should it be the NHS so that's good news <laughs> very timely thanks colleagues for taking your time today there are lots of lots of messages out there it's going to be a challenge to sort of cut this down and to compartmentalize it so that those messages come across to colleagues the big thing for me is that we need to dare to have this conversation and to continue the conversation and as someone's mentioned in the chat you know it's not about doom and gloom it's about being able to create a space to make the most of the talent that we have in our context within further education. And, you know, my menopause is my menopause. It's about us all having an opportunity to learn and to be able to support each other. And the idea of policies, to me, policies have always been a strange thing. You know, I look mm-hmm. at a really good person and I base my policy on that person. So policies are personal things. So if you've got a good manager, that is the policy. And that's the one that we to follow, not something artificial created by someone in the darkened room. So thank you, colleagues, for a wonderful conversation. I've learned an awful lot. And I'm also heartened that there are some good things taking place in the further education sector. And we have to get these out much more widely across the board. And that's the role of a pinder in the ETF and of colleagues here in the AOC as well. So let's get that out and let's share these thoughts with others. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon and look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye for now. Thank you to Jeff, to Asma, to Paul, to Katina, Marguerite and Colette for joining us today to discuss why menopause matters. This is Apinda, the EDI lead at Education and Training Foundation. Thank you. To find out more about how the ETF supports and promotes equality, diversity and inclusion throughout the organisation and the wider sector, please visit our website et-foundation.co.uk. Thank you for listening.